Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. President Trump will move on to his fourth national security advisor. He asked John Bolton for his resignation last night. The president said on Twitter this morning he strongly disagreed with many of Bolton's suggestions, as did many others in the administration. We're going to talk now with Uri Friedman. He covers national security and global affairs for The Atlantic. He just co-authored the piece, What Really Prompted Trump to Call Off the Afghan Peace Talks. Uh, Thanks for joining us, Uri Friedman. Thanks for having me on. Well, this is interesting about John Bolton. And uh, I mean, he was on the outs for a while in the administration now. But um, ironically, uh, Bolton was the guy who didn't like the Afghan peace talks. Trump called off the peace talks and then he fired him. He took his advice and then he fired him. Yeah, I think what may have happened is that this was, this exposed fundamental differences but, uh, between the two of them, even though Trump did eventually call them off. We don't know if he called them off for good. He still may have this idea of doing some grand signing ceremony with um, the Taliban. It's just that the timing wasn't right. For example, it occurred right after uh, an American soldier was killed in a Taliban attack. But I think there were fundamental disagreements here. John Bolton was basically of the view that we don't negotiate with the Taliban. We can't trust them at all. If you want to withdraw down troops and fulfill your campaign promise, you can do that. We can do that all on your own. You don't need to negotiate with the Taliban. And Mike Pompeo, Trump's secretary of state, had a different view, as did the Afghan negotiator for the administration. And I think this was one of those cases in which these fissures were really exposed and they just couldn't take it anymore. And Bolton resigned and Trump seems to, uh, you know, be framing it as him firing him. Whatever you want to believe, what Trump said is true. They had fundamental policy disagreements, Afghanistan being prominent among them. When we go back to the hiring process of John Bolton, I seem to remember it was because uh, President Trump seemed to think he looked good on Fox News, and that was his uh, key hiring priority. Whereas if you look down the list of things that John Bolton advocated, they would not exactly jive with the president's. No, from a policy perspective, you wouldn't, these are strange bedfellows. I think it was true that, you know, uh, Trump used to watch John Bolton a lot on Fox News, and Bolton was actually a very good exponent of the president's policies and ideas. He is very good and practiced on TV. Uh, Actually, one thing that's interesting is in recent days, there have been reports that Bolton did not even want to go on TV uh, to defend some of the policy positions the Trump administration was taking. Uh, One of the most notable things was Afghanistan, but also he hasn't talked much about North Korea, something else he disagrees with the president's approach on, uh, except only when Trump is taking a hardline view, and then you see him all over television. So that was part of it. But actually, um, the president has also said, and I think this was really evident in the way the two um, interacted with one another, he liked having Bolton around because Bolton was kind of the attack dog. He was the one who who everyone in foreign capitals thought he wants to go to war. You know, he's a hardline view. He wants to go to a war with Iran. He wants to go to a war with North Korea. He wants to take a hard line on Russia and China. And Trump liked having that around because it was almost like good cop, bad cop. You know, they know that I have someone telling me to take a hardline stance. They better watch what they do. And so he, Trump even admitted to this. And one question will be, if Trump loses that component of his administration, will uh, the view of the president and the administration in foreign capitals change? Well, you know, John Bolton so vigorously wanted war with Iran. He's been, he wants a, a regime change anyway with Iran. And he was aligned with the Mujahideen Kulk, this uh, odd, odd outfit that also wants regime change with Iran. And uh, the president went a long way with him and his 
uh, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, who wants something similar to John Bolton in this instance, um, they they um, teamed up and uh, got the U.S. very close to war with Iran. Yes, they did. And, you know, by many accounts, what I've heard, what has been in other reports as well, is that there there was this pivotal moment recently, you know, uh, several months back where uh, we almost uh, fired at, a, you know, we almost launched some attacks against Iran as a result of them shooting down our drone. We didn't do that. Trump pulled back in the last minute. But, you know, from the accounts and from people I've spoken to, John Bolton was advocating for that approach, for striking back and establishing deterrence against Iran. And one thing that interests me about that is there was this whole narrative, if you remember, in the first part of the Trump administration that was, you know, all his advisors are the adults in the room, right? They are restraining Trump from unleashing fire and fury on North Korea, from uh, being really impulsive. That was the narrative about the national security environment in Washington. But one thing I would say is the Iran example is very interesting because it actually illustrates a counter argument, which is that Bolton was saying, let's you know, strike back at Iran for downing our drone, and Trump was the one who pulled back. Uh, and so I think in many ways, from a military perspective, uh, Bolton actually had the, you know, the happier trigger finger, if you will. Um, Bolton, uh, Trump likes to talk tough, and he likes to have someone by himself. He likes to surround himself with people who talk tough. But he actually doesn't really want to get militarily involved, especially in the Middle East where he's trying to end these forever wars. And so what you saw with Iran is you saw both of them agreeing on getting out of the Obama-era nuclear deal, but disagreeing on how far they were willing to go to apply pressure on Iran, especially militarily. It's also instructive to remember that John Bolton was advocating for something like a war with Venezuela. He wants regime change in Venezuela, uh, tried to support the opposition there on this front, and uh, seems to have gotten pretty uh, close to doing that, uh, but it failed. Yeah. Um, one of my big questions as I digest this news in Washington is what is going to happen with Venezuela now that John Bolton is leaving. You know, I did a an article looking at the um, Venezuelan representatives in D.C. of the government that has been recognized by the Trump administration, the Guaido government, which is challenging the rule of the Maduro government. And they had one of their biggest allies in Washington was John Bolton. You know, I, I took a look at one point at his Twitter feed, and I think it was like 70% of his tweets had been about Venezuela. He he cares about this issue a lot. He feels this is an area where the U.S. can apply pressure on Venezuela. He wasn't necessarily advocating a military intervention, but he was kind of engaging in brinksmanship. He Famously, when, he, when they announced sanctions on Venezuela, he had something sticking out of you know his documents when he came up to the podium uh, to speak, and it said something like five thousand troops to Colombia. And, and there was speculation at the time that he this was almost a psyop. This was an effort to get into the Maduro government's head and to yeah, scare them into thinking U.S. military intervention was imminent. So he cared about this issue a lot. He prioritized it a lot. And there's not that many other people in the Trump administration other other than their Venezuela ally, um, Envoy, who has been prioritizing this. And so you got to imagine there's a lot of people uh, who support the opposition candidate in Venezuela, his representatives in Washington, who are now scrambling to say, you know, will the Trump administration continue prioritizing this issue or will it fade into the background as a new national security advisor comes in? I'm talking with Uri Friedman. He covers national security and global affairs for The Atlantic. We're talking about the um, uh, resignation of John Bolton as the national security advisor. President Trump accepted his resignation. 
the nation and asked for it uh, last night. I wanted to say something also about North Korea and John Bolton, where the president also diverged from John Bolton's ideas. And I mean, the last time the president was in Asia and John Bolton was there, he sent um, he sent Bolton to Mongolia while he talked about uh, what North Korea with other people. Uh, it was a sign that he was on the outs and uh, Bolton just had an entirely different idea about North Korea. Oh, yeah. I mean, I think this was the issue where they were most at odds. You know, I I think back to this one image of John Bolton during the uh, Vietnam summit in um, between the second summit between Kim Jong-un and Donald Trump. And John Bolton is in the room and he's shaking Kim Jong-un's hand. And you have to imagine going through John Bolton's head at that time as I wish I could be anywhere but here. This is so opposite of everything I've advocated for really years and years about what we should do on North Korea. I mean, he opposed, he did not trust the North Koreans at all. He felt that they were just trying to buy time and develop their, uh, you know, their nuclear program. He did not subscribe to the president's view that these optics and these big summits were getting making any progress. In fact, he felt that the president was being hood. You know that this was a way that the North Koreans typically use to hoodwink the U.S. into uh, you know dragging their heels while they just developed their nuclear program. So they were very much at odds. John Bolton had advocated basically a preventive military strike on North Korea to take out their program, which would have been led to a devastating conflict. Uh, Trump would threaten that, but he never really got particularly close to that kind of uh, policy prescription. So they were very much at odds. And you saw this in just the way that the North Korea situation has been handled in recent months. I mean, Donald Trump uh, really had Mike Pompeo by his side at all of these events. He tried to do things himself a lot. Uh, John Bolton was really cut out of this process. And yes, he was at one point kind of exiled to a trip to Mongolia to be away from the uh, third Trump-Kim meeting. So I, I have to imagine that they did not see eye to eye on this for a long time. And that's why I think John Bolton kind of adopted other policies like Venezuela, for example. He knew he wasn't going to win with Trump on North Korea and Afghanistan to an extent. And so he started to adopt other issues like pulling out of a nuclear um, you know, reduction treaty with Russia, Venezuela, things like that, where he felt he could exert more influence. And it's also good to remember uh, Syria is another place they diverged on. The president wanted to pull troops out of Syria and announced abruptly a a truth withdrawal. And um, John Bolton worked against that. Yes, he did. And what's interesting about that is he did kind of show there that there are sometimes you can have policy agreements with the president, disagreements with the president, and you can work from within to change those policies. So Syria was this big kind of reckoning for a lot of advisors in the administration because Trump really wanted to get out right away and almost everyone on his national on his national security team did not want to. So what do you do in that situation? Well, we saw different approaches. Jim Mattis, the defense secretary, resigned and wrote a resignation letter saying why he thought Trump was not treating allies well and why he disagreed policy-wise with him. And so his his solution was to get out of the administration. He felt he did not have any more influence. John Bolton certainly disagreed with the president on that. He felt that this was precipitous, that the Islamic State hadn't been defeated, that if we left Syria uh, too quickly and rashly, we would be abandoning allies who fought with us. And that we'd also, one thing John Bolton was very concerned about is he's an Iran hawk. And he was concerned that if we left Syria right away, Iran could swoop in uh, and exert influence in the region in addition to Russia, which he also views as an adversary. So John Bolton completely disagreed with this, but he actually stayed in the administration, and he and Mike Pompeo, who also felt somewhat similarly, um, they basically got Trump to backtrack very quietly. You know, 
Donald Trump is not someone who is going to announce a major uh, policy reversal like that. Um, but he actually has kept troops in for the time being. Now, that could change in an hour. Who knows? This is the Trump administration. Things change very quickly. Um, but they did manage to actually shift the president uh, away from his stance of wanting to take all troops out right away. And right now we have kind of a holding pattern where we still have some troop presence there and it's kind of indefinite. I wonder if you could say something about the uh, relationship uh, with John Bolton and Mike Pompeo, because Pompeo is a guy who seems to agree with Bolton on a lot of things, but he had such a different has such a different approach with uh, President Trump. And uh, I was struck by an article about Pompeo recently that you know he does not leave any daylight between himself and President Trump, and he's got a, a kind of different personal approach to the president. Uh, that uh, Bolton just couldn't pull off. Yeah, if you want to, this is really, today is a day to take stock of the way you survive in the Trump administration. I mean, this is, John Bolton was Donald Trump's third national security advisor. He's out. We're about to head into our fourth national security advisor. Mike Pompeo has stayed the whole time. It's amazing how he has managed to navigate this administration to stay on the president's good side, to move from one high-profile position at CIA to another to take on some of Trump's biggest initiatives, um, North Korea, for example, and also to an extent, uh, Afghanistan. And I think they really have a different approach uh, to how they handle uh, their work. So John Bolton it felt that he had very strong policy views. I mean, he was in the Bush administration. He's been a government official for a long time in um, the executive agency on Lake Pompeo. And he has he's an ideologue. So he has very strong views on how to handle every policy. His view was that he would win some battles, lose some, but he could try to influence the president and get him around to his side. And actually, often in interviews, when John Bolton would be asked about a place where he disagreed with the president, he'd say, well, I'm working for the president. He wouldn't say, I agree with the president. He would say, you know, he is my boss. And so I'm going to do what I can do. My my record is out there. You've seen my Fox News appearances. You know where I stand, but I work for the president. So he would almost allow that daylight. Pompeo is the exact opposite. I mean, he may have certain views that, you know, he was, we forget, he was, he supported Marco Rubio in the primary. So that gives you a sense of the difference between what he views on foreign policy and what the president views. But his role has been, I am going to implement what the president wants to do. I'm going to find a way to make it happen. Almost like more of a businessman's approach. It's not an ideological approach. It's, it's saying, I am going to find a way to make the president's uh, views work. And I'm also going to be um, evasive enough in the positions I take that if when the president changes his position, because he's won't to do that, he often changes his position, I won't feel completely out of the loop. I will be close enough that I can move, you know, and shift along with the president. So Pompeo has taken a very different approach. And it has worked because he has, he, you know, other than maybe fulfilling political ambitions at some point, it looks like he is still very much in Donald Trump's good graces and will be staying on for as long as the administration goes on. When it comes to this thing with Afghanistan and the talks blowing up here, um, these scheduled talks at Camp David, uh, you know, Mike Pompeo was out there selling the president's rejection of the talks and blowing the whole thing up um, pretty hard. And I I thought, well, he must have been pretty also invested in the talks. I mean, they, they were there was something that was happening that he, he knew all about and was was, was working on. Um, it's kind of an amazing thing. 
Yeah, I, I think he, I think Mike Pompeo probably knows that right now he is trying to uh, go out there and explain the president's position because often what we hear from the president is, you know, something in tweets and we don't get the full explanation. So he is going out and defending that. But I think he knows that the negotiations that he has worked to achieve aren't over. You know, Donald Trump says, the negotiations are dead for the moment because the Taliban did this attack in Kabul where they killed an American soldier. But Donald Trump has also made clear that he eventually wants a negotiated solution, that he wants U.S. troops out of Afghanistan. I think Mike Pompeo knows that. So he he doesn't see this as a loss for his diplomatic effort to get a negotiated, a negotiated solution. I think he's just trying to explain why suddenly they've been derailed and the Camp David summit isn't going to happen. And so I think he, he can go out and defend that position while knowing in the back of his head that eventually the, thing he, the things he has been working on are going to come to fruition. And I think one thing that the, the Bolton leaving and Pompeo staying does do is that even though we're in this moment right now where it seems like the talks are going nowhere and the peace deal is over, this actually boosts in the long run the chances that we are going to get a negotiated solution in Afghanistan and at least some kind of troop reduction because the camp that was advocating for a diplomatic solution and a deal with the Taliban was Pompeo and his Afghanistan envoy uh, who works at the State Department. Bolton was saying we shouldn't negotiate at all with the Taliban. So Bolton's gone, Pompeo's there, even though we've soured at the moment on you know hosting everyone at Camp David and doing some kind of big signing ceremony. I don't think that prospect is gone for good. Well, the next national security advisor, uh, it could be someone from Fox News. It could be someone from the military. Uh, these seem to be the, the, the drawing pools of the president. Yeah, and more Fox News in the military these days, I got to say. You know, at the beginning of the administration, there were a lot of former generals, people coming out. There, you still see that, but he's uh, Trump has gone more in the direction of people who are able to sell his positions, um, who are, you know, have the credibility on Fox News to talk to the base, um, and who aren't so um i think one thing donald trump, we've seen a shift in donald trump was more militant i would say in the way he expressed his views at the beginning of the administration when he was tra- trying to establish himself as a tough guy we're in a new era right now with donald trump it's very much the era of i'm gonna meet with anyone bad good kim jong-un iran's president the leader of china and i'm going to be the deal maker i mean we saw that in afghanistan with this camp david summit it seems that he the Taliban didn't want to come unless they had a deal. And Trump was saying, no, we want you to come even before deal because I want to show people that I can be this great deal maker. We're in this moment where Trump is trying to prove himself a master deal maker on the world stage. And you don't necessarily want a someone who's military focused <laughs> because that is a different – that's not diplomacy. That's certainly not the personal diplomacy that Donald Trump wants. And so I would look more to the Fox News crowd uh, – for a potential um, uh, next national security advisor or someone who's not necessarily from the military. So, you know, we don't know yet who this is going to be. Jack Keane, who's a, an advisor to the president, often appears on Fox News, a former general, is one option that is out there. Steve Began is currently the North Korea envoy. Um, he served in the Bush administration, too. And at the time when they were looking for a new national security advisor and they settled, they decided on Bolton, his name was in the mix, too. And, he, you know, North Korean diplomacy isn't really going anywhere at the moment. So that's another uh, name to keep an eye on. But we don't know for sure. I think 
What we should keep in mind, though, is Donald Trump very much knows what he wants these days, um, and he knows what he wants heading into the election. I think he's going to be looking for someone who's more in the Pompeo mold. Well, do you think Donald Trump can go into the next election as you know, with this reputation uh, that he thinks he has as a master deal maker who cannot make any deals in foreign policy? He's got nothing: uh, North Korea, Iran, uh, you know, Venezuela, Afghanistan, and there, there's no deal. Exactly. And I think that is a huge vulnerability for him. Uh, certainly something the Democratic candidates are going to point out. You know, he has shown himself a pretty skilled at building leverage, but then he has been totally unable to translate that leverage into actual diplomatic breakthroughs and deals. Think about it with North Korea. They're China. still testing missiles. China, nothing. You know, we have a trade war. We don't have a trade deal. Um, Venezuela, Iran, we pulled out of the deal. We don't have a new one. There's a, we have the UN General Assembly come, coming up. He may meet uh, the Iranian president potentially, but we don't have any you know sense that they're going to be going back to any kind of negotiations, let alone something better than what Obama was able to do. Uh, with his deal. So that is a huge vulnerability. I think that is why uh, Afghanistan was so appealing to the president, in addition to just feeling that it is a drain on American blood and treasure. I think he felt that this could be something he could do before the 2020 election with everything else floundering. He could make good on this campaign promise. He is definitely looking for something concrete. I think one thing we've learned about Donald Trump, certainly North Korea provides a pretty vivid case study of this, is that he is interested in at least the appearance of diplomatic progress, even if the substance doesn't change. I mean, right now he is still touting North Korea as, as a success just because he's been able to establish a good relationship with Kim Jong-un and he's not testing long-range missiles. But under, you know, beneath the surface, and North Korea has figured this out, by the way, beneath the surface they are still developing their nuclear program. So I think right now he has only shown himself particularly interested in the superficial deal. He has not been able to achieve anything substantive, and he doesn't seem particularly concerned about that, though he will want to be able to point to some successes heading into the 2020 election. Uri Friedman covers national security and global affairs for The Atlantic. He co-authored the piece, What Really Prompted Trump to Call Off Afghan Peace Talks. Thanks for joining us and talking about the resignation of John Bolton and the Afghan Peace Talks. Thanks for having me on. Coming up after the break, we will talk with former Worldview producer Tom Gawkin. We've been talking with some of the uh, producers of the program as we celebrate 25 years. I'm Jerome McDonald, and you're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald, and we're marking 25 years of Worldview, and we're bringing some selections occasionally from our archives, and we're also having some conversations with the people who made the show happen every day. And today we're joined by former Worldview producer Tom Gawkin. He produced the show from 1999 to 2002, signed up again for service in 2006. It's good to see you, Tom Gawkin. Great to see you too, Jerome. Um, you were part of the University of Chicago pipeline uh, that we had going here. We got Andrea Wenzel in, who's a, a former producer who we'll hear from. And, and suddenly I had a bunch of people flying in from the University of Chicago. Uh, where'd you come from? Uh, well, from Chicago <laughs> uh, through Andrea, yeah, I came into to Worldview. But before that, I was in, in New York um, and uh, made my way here for, for the university and um, ended up uh, – Listening to radio, doing radio at the University of Chicago. Um, I had my own show called Human Rights Now. Uh, got me into the idea of doing radio more. And then I met Andrea, who was starting to work here. And that's the history. 
There we go. And you, know, you had an interesting background. Your dad was a diplomat, and um, you grew up in part of the time in Cyprus. I did. I spent uh, most of my early childhood in Cyprus from about you know, first grade to uh, eighth grade. And uh, that's where I learned about the idea that the world is a complex place that has lots of problems, but also a lot of people working to solve them. Um, now, we talked, I remember one of the segments you produced, and it was with a friend of yours who lived in the Turkish uh, Cypriot area. And uh, we talked to her about just her life and her ambitions in life. And she really gave me a different perspective. I mean, the Turkish Cypriot area, they don't have passports that are recognized by anybody but Turkey. And the the her vision of the future was so... Um, limited, and she was so depressed about it. It's a pretty depressing situation if you've been living through it in Cyprus for so long. You know, the the, the division of the island uh, over decades now is, is still unsolved, um, and they come back to it. There's moments of hope every few years, but then uh, it doesn't work out for various reasons. And, um, you know, Shevgul Ludag, who's the, the woman you're speaking about, uh, has done a lot of work uh, as a journalist to, to try and help bridge the divide there in, in various ways. But uh, it's a challenge. Tom, now you're working with the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists. You're a multimedia guy. Yeah, I changed gears a little bit uh, after a few years. I uh, went from radio and via the uh, online world and ended up in uh, doing some some multimedia stuff now. So I'm, I'm at the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists. We're uh, trying to, uh, you know, it's a 75-year-old organization uh, and is now really trying to pull in the uh, multimedia um, elements that everybody's looking for online. I've been looking at yours and they're great. I'm enjoying them. Thank you. Now, I wanted to, you were kind enough to bring clips I was, uh, <laughs> but I, I my, one of my any, favorite I, things. I didn't, know, of, <laughs> I didn't know anybody had kept clips. I, well, I keep a lot of things. I shouldn't keep uh, too many things in my basement. <laughs> I'm a hoarder. <laughs> but but uh, uh, I did have mini discs because back then we used mini discs uh, for everything we did in the, <laughs> on the show. And um, so I listened to some last night and found these, these clips, um, which uh, – Really, these promos, which were one of the funny the things that I enjoyed making the most uh, at times, and so uh, here's one of those clips. It is my belief that it takes to, to tango. Abdul Salam Abubakar, former military leader of Nigeria. It takes two to tango. I am ready. The arena is ready. Maybe the um, uh, dancing instructor is ready. Uh, we have to find the opportunity and begin. Ehud Barak, Prime Minister of Israel. Listen for the sound of the world as it tangos on Worldview, weekdays from 12 to 1 on WBEZ Chicago. That's a riot. I I had no memory of that. I have absolutely no memory of that. But it's funny. It is, and it's one of the one of the things I enjoyed about working on the show so much was you know getting these uh, in- people say interesting, funny things all the time, especially when they're you know so prominent and politicians and, and people like that, and um, just being able to to put it together and, and work with it that way is fun. Yeah, Abdul Salam Abubakar, he was a big military dictator in, in Nigeria. Yes, and people might not remember that, but he was a he was a big deal at the time. But also, even that promo, you know, it shows like we were talking about <laughs> lots of different things at once. You know, there's big world full of things to discuss. All right, let's hear another. Sometimes world events sneak up on you. 
everyone is shocked, shocked to discover there's money laundering going on in Russia. Don't be shocked by world events. Listen to Worldview weekdays from 12 to 1 on Chicago Public Radio, WBEZ Chicago. I think this is the beginning of a beautiful friendship. Well, we leaned pretty heavily on the music there, didn't we? (laughs) (laughs) But it was a nice sentiment. Yeah, it gives you that warm, fuzzy feeling that, you know, (laughs) we're going to listen to this show and have a good time. (laughs) Um, Yeah, there was a uh, Russian money laundering. That became a bigger deal as time went on, didn't it? (laughs) Definitely. I found one other uh, th- uh, clip that I, uh, in my pile of mini discs that somehow still work after 20 years. I would, I would like to say something about mini discs and the transition to mini discs. When we were at Clark and Adams, our old studios, we were all reel to reel tape. When we came here to this institution, we became all mini disc. It was crazy. It was uh, it, it was not the format for editing, and we were editing on it constantly. And it was and the machines were breaking constantly. <laughs> were breaking constantly. It was really weird, uh, um, but they were kind of handy because they were so small, and, uh, and and obviously you could keep them in a drawer for decades and not even know they were there. And one of my favorite memories, to be honest, of, of producing here is uh, I was cutting a. a piece of tape that we'd done just before the show and uh, you were already on the air introducing this segment uh, while I was still editing it on this little mini disc machine and uh, just when you were you know leading into it I, I finished pulled the mini disc out ran, ran into the control room and and chucked the mini disc like a ninja star <laughs> across the <laughs> control room and <laughs> slammed it into the machine and got it just in time so that was that was my it's just like in the movies yeah exactly uh, <laughs> action so- now, our third clip here is me talking in front of somebody. I don't even remember this. Yeah, this is from a, a talk you gave at the United Nations Association of Chicago, I guess about 2001, early 2001, I think. And, and this is Brian Endless introducing me, who we later talked with about Rwanda and things. Here's Brian Endless. An average day for Jerome is talking about anything from U.S. bombings of Iraq to how hand-me-down clothing gets to Zambia. He has to cover a very wide range of topics. He claims that getting prepped is his never-ending challenge and likens it to drinking out of a fire hydrant. We can ask him exactly what that analogy means when he comes up later. In addition to covering the main issues, Jerome tries very hard to focus on issues that might be overlooked in the media that we might not know very much about. He often provides us with the only information that we can get about those issues, whether it's ethnic divisions in Fiji or discrimination against the Roma people in Eastern Europe, topics that we just can't find anywhere else. In his current capacity, Jerome has interviewed on Worldview a wide range of different people from National Security Advisor Condoleezza Rice to John Hume from Northern Ireland and Nobel Prize winning economist Amerita Sen. Tonight we're calling it Turn the Tables on Jerome, an evening with Jerome McDonald where we get to ask him the questions. So ladies and gentlemen, our own Chicago's international splashy media personality, Jerome McDonald. Hi, thank you. That was very nice, Brian. And uh, Okay, um, doing a talk show, uh, you may not believe this. I mean, I'm talking to thousands of people every day, but for me, it's relatively monastic. I don't, it's kind of lonely. You don't get feedback very often, really. And uh, 
so you go back to your desk after some shows and you, and you think, you know, I, I'd really like to get a phone call. I'd like to get some email. I'd like to get some reaction to what it is I, I just did. And sometimes it's pretty good and you think, I'm going to get something. And uh, often you don't. But uh, the other day I was doing a show and it, I go back to my desk. I'm in this situation. I think somebody's going to do something. And uh, I got an email from a guy and he's uh, very complimentary, very nice. Let me get it. And he said, listening to the Falun Gong interview today, I got to thinking about how I'd miss this kind of unique and important radio if I lived anywhere else. Just wanted to express my appreciation. So it's going pretty good. You know, I'm really getting stroked here. It's great. And then, then he's got this other sentence. Norm, tell BEZ to buy you longevity treatments because life in Chicago just wouldn't be the same without you. So this raises a couple questions. Who is Norm? <laughs> I've heard of Norm MacDonald, the uh, TV guy. He's got a TV show. He's maybe got me mixed up with that. We're going to deadpan guys, maybe. And then there's the longevity treatments aspect of this man's email. Uh, a lot of people think I'm older than I look when they meet me. They, uh, I got, we got one so far tonight. And, uh, and clearly this man thinks I'm near death. <laughs> I, he thinks I'm about to keel over and die. Uh, that's, um, so you know, I'm grateful for the opportunity to show up and, and show that I'm taking oxygen <laughs> and uh, show that I uh, do exist in the flesh. And, uh, and hopefully we'll have a nice conversation and a nice talk uh, after I'm done uh, blathering at you. That was me in 2001, speaking at the United Nations Association, brought here by Tom Gawkin, former producer. I have no memory of that. I have no idea how you got a hold of it. Uh, I was there in the audience, apparently. <laughs> I don't remember that either, but Brian Unless said I was so, <laughs> on the tape. Um, yeah, uh, I think uh, it's a good memory, um, and uh, there are lots of them. And, uh, you know, I'm, uh, I think, really just grateful to, to have been part of the show um, for, for a few years and you know, I think what we've done and what you've done since then um, was really a critical thing for the community and um, all the things that the other producers as well. So thank them because they've been doing that for a long time, too. And uh, there's a lot of people who are part of this. And, Tom, you've you continue to chip in ideas and help us with series ideas and things like that. I know you were um, helping us with the capitalism series and stuff like that. Yeah, I mean, it's fun to be able to, to just contribute that way, too. Just uh, ideas that come in from, you know, all kinds of people, too, I'm sure. You know, even when I was working here, there's ideas that people bring just because they're interested in the world. Yep, that's the um, kind of the driving force here has been accept the ideas and work with people in the community and make it happen. Right. And I'm glad I finally made it on the side of the glass. I've tried studiously to avoid that, but now I'm in front of a mic. But you hosted at the University of Chicago back in the day. I did. <laughs> Tom Gawkin is uh, with the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists these days. He's a multimedia editor there. He uh, produced Worldview from 1999 to 2002 and did another stint in 2006 and almost did a third stint. Tom Gawkin, nice to see you, and we'll talk to you soon. Thanks, Drew. Coming up after the break, we'll talk with one of our friends from the Global Activism series, Kevin Adair, and we'll discuss his operation in Haiti. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ.
This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonnell. On our global activism segment where we feature people who make the world a better place, you get to be pretty pretty friendly with some of the participants. And one of them we are friendly with is Kevin Adair. He is the head of Fuego del Sol. They are a waste management, recycling, clean cooking enterprise in Haiti. And it is great to see you, Kevin Adair. Thanks, Jerome. It's been a while. It has, but thanks for having me back. It's great to be back. Um, Tell your story to people because yours is uh, interesting. You were an entertainer, a a juggler, a performer. You you performed at Navy Pier, if I'm not mistaken, back in the day when they thought that having uh, performers was a good idea around here. I did. We got things started. We were here before the Ferris wheel, before the first Ferris wheel. (laughs) It was all the way back to Memorial Day weekend, 1995, and I performed here for 10 years. So I like to say Navy Pier, it's not just a gig, it's a career. (laughs) And now, me me too, I say the same thing to people. And now, when did you pick up and decide, you went to the Dominican in Republic first. Right. So the sequence was, I was actually performing here at the pier, and I got a call to be the entertainer at an all-inclusive resort, actually four of them, in the Dominican Republic, in the Punta Cana area. And so the phone rings, and I say, sure. And the next thing, I'm on a plane. Tell you the truth, I didn't really know where the Dominican Republic was at that time, but I figured it out pretty pretty quickly. It's an island, and it shares that island with the country of Haiti. And so I was performing every evening at the resorts, and I had my days free. So it was there that I I felt the call, really, to do something ecological. And my background was in behavioral psychology and tinkering with uh, different kinds of gizmos. So I put it all together and made something ecological there on the island. And Fuego del Sol, you were based there in the Dominican Republic, but you were doing a lot of your work in Haiti. Right. So we were always working across the border. The The island is only about as big as, say, half of Illinois. So like the top third of Illinois is the Dominican Republic and then the other rest of the half is Haiti. So uh, so we were always working across the border. We were doing sun ovens, and they had some strong interest in the Dominican Republic. But as we moved into Haiti, people wanted their food cooked faster and faster. So we realized that we had to adjust based on what our clients wanted. And so we adapted to continue to cook cleanly, but to use recycled fuel briquettes in an efficient stove because you can cook with uh, fuel briquettes at night and when there's no sun. So that was our transition at that point. Uh, Explain how most people are doing their cooking in Haiti, because this is a long-running problem. Right. Well, as I've learned more and more about the, the culture, I've also learned what keeps countries which are considered fragile states, what keeps them impoverished. And there are these key sticking points, sort of hobbling factors. And one of them in the Dominican Republic is the fact that they're cooking with charcoal and it creates 300,000 jobs and it's a 5% of the economy, but it destroys 10 pounds of tree for every one pound of charcoal. So it's not sustainable. There's no possible way they could make enough trees in Haiti to fulfill their charcoal cooking needs. They cook with 900,000 tons of charcoal every year, which works out to 9 million tons of trees destroyed. All right, and this is an island. They they run out of trees, and deforestation becomes an escalating problem, mudslides, uh, all the rest. Right, exactly. And then they're also illegally uh, transporting those trees from the Dominican Republic, where the forests are supposedly reserved and kept track of, but they're sneaking in there. And, and it's really a, it's a cross-border issue. It's a, it's, it's a strange tragedy. The two countries have some conflicts, extensive conflicts when they're trying to do things legally. But once you make it an illegal 
illegal enterprise. Everybody works together phenomenally. <laughs> and uh, the Dominicans help the Haitians steal the Dominican trees. Many, many countries have found that a bonding experience, haven't it's, they? <laughs> it's amazing. And, and that's why we, uh, we were working along and we, had, uh, we were contacted by some independent filmmakers, Sam and Jack Powers, and they asked if they could follow us and meet the actual charcoal producers and learn directly from the, the mouths of the producers of the charcoal whether they like the jobs, and of course they found that the charcoal producers are miserable, hating producing charcoal because they're living in this smoky mess, destroying 10 pounds of tree for every one pound of charcoal produced. And so they made the film, which is the independent doc- documentary, Chabon, and that's going to be featured this weekend at the Freeland Film Festival. Um, that's a terrific thing. I mean, does this tell the full story of Fuego del Sol? Because you, you're often... Um you created this oven and recycling uh, enterprise that uh, eliminates the need to do that kind of thing. Exactly. So our solution is based on solutions, similar solutions around the world. We create recycled fuel briquettes, and I brought another one for you so you can have it. It's made out of recycled paper, cardboard, and sawdust, and it cooks in an ultra-efficient gasification stove. It's called a T-LUD stove. So the briquette made from recycled materials, paper, cardboard, and sawdust is heated in the stove and it turns into a gas and then the gas is what actually combusts and it burns so efficiently that it actually achieves 45% efficiency. And just to compare that, the uh, gas cook stove that we use uh, with methane natural gas is only 20% efficient and Mm. the charcoal stoves that they use are only 1% efficient. So they're destroying 10 pounds of trees to make one pound of charcoal. Then... The stoves they cook on is only 10% efficient on that. So it ends up with a 1%, 1% aggregate. So ours are 45% efficient, and what's currently being cooked with is 1% efficient. And the briquettes themselves, they are they look like donuts, and they look like crushed cardboard donuts. I used to have one on my desk for many years because people would because uh, I liked it when people walked up and said, "What is that?" Yeah, well, you can have another <laughs> one right now because it's uh, it looks like kind of like something you could eat, but then it's it's uh, it doesn't look at anything like like what you want on the. Well, that's the that's the point. We don't burn them. We don't carbonize them. We don't turn them into charcoal because our stove cooks with the entire combustion system. So from the moment the briquette is lit, the energy created from that combustion goes directly and is focused right on the pot. It's, that's how we reach that 45% efficiency. And if I remember correctly, you're getting the waste from consulates in Port-au-Prince and things like that? Yes, actually, it's true. We uh, have as our clients the U.S. Embassy, the Canadian Embassy, the U.N. operations there, quite a number of other ones. And we also do commercial shredding of paper in our facility because we pulverize the material before we wet it and press it into briquettes. So that's another side of our business, actually. We actually have a full zero-waste model for the future for Haiti, not just for paper, but for recycling uh, a lot of other things, aluminum, plastic, even eventually glass as well. So we're, we're actually expanding to have a full zero-waste model for the entire country. That's our growth plan. Can you come to the United States with this? Well, actually, <laughs> yes. The, the concept of working in Haiti, we can actually make some moves there that perhaps there's some regulations or some status quo issues here in the United States that they might not be introduced. So our goal to work in Haiti is to get some innovative concepts there in the, in the sector of waste management and then potentially introduce them here in the U.S. later. I'm t- Talking with Kevin Adair, he's from Fuego del Sol. It's a social eco enterprise, and it does waste management, recycling, clean cooking, and is got a zero waste vision for Haiti. Now, you mentioned the um, 
the documentary and your doc, the documentary is showing at the Freeland Film Festival in Green Lake, Wisconsin this weekend. That's right. We've had our uh, Haiti premiere was earlier this year, and it's been shown also in Mexico at another sustainable film festival. And we're really excited to have our U.S. premiere this weekend on the 14th of September up in Green Lake, Wisconsin at the Freeland Film Festival. Um, let's talk with Rich Christian. He's from the Freeland Film Festival. Is He's the executive director there and is with us in the studio. Great to meet you, Rich. Hi, Jerome. Thanks so much for having us, and I'm thrilled to be here and be able to talk about the Freeland Film Festival in Freeland. Uh, it's a, a wonderful thing we're trying to do up in Green Lake, Wisconsin, which is often called the oldest resort west of Niagara Falls, uh, the deepest lake in Wisconsin at 237 feet. I'm sure lots of people have been there. I've been there. Uh, people vacation there all the time. Um, and there's lots of golf courses around there and things. Uh, this is your film festival is uh, chock full of global uh, content and environmental sustainable content. We have a wonderful schedule. Uh, we're starting opening night on Friday night with Children of Bal Ashram, which is a story of uh, two Nobel Peace Prize winners uh, who have uh, who are rescuing boys from child labor. Uh, it's very important work that they're doing. Uh, other films that we are including, uh, there's a movie put out by HBO called Ice on Fire. Uh, it's an interesting title in that uh, there's a visual that you can actually see of someone poking a hole in the ice uh, and there's a flame above it, and then a huge flame comes up because of uh, methane that is being coming out of the ice. Lots of wonderful uh, movies that were. Where, where showcasing. did the f- festival come from? How did who got the idea? Well, we're going to here. We're in Green Lake, Wisconsin. We're in this vacation area. We're going to start this kind of film festival. Steve Galster was brought up in Green Lake, Wisconsin. Uh, he founded Freeland many years ago. Uh, the goal for a world free of wildlife trafficking, of human trafficking, and to support uh, and uh, help the recovery of vulnerable ecosystems. Steve works out of Thailand much of the year, but he has brought up in uh, Green Lake. He wanted to have uh, the Freeland Film Festival in Green Lake. One of uh, Part of his story, he's noted uh, as... Uh, someone who has actually worked uh, to uh, help the survival of the Siberian tiger, uh, and it's in his Wikipedia. But Steve uh, has worked very, uh, very hard to start uh, a series of film festivals. The first one he did was in Hanoi, Vietnam uh, in 2015, and that was for working to uh, stop the trafficking of rhino horn and help that culture uh, understand the uh, the problems with that. You know, it's interesting and courageous to do something where you're trying to create a community and world that is doing the right thing. You, you know, no matter where it is, uh, Green Lake, Wisconsin, Thailand, uh, you're, you're trying to make the right thing happen with a community of people. We really are one world, and the sooner we all understand that, I think the better off we'll all be. Uh, there are so many things that we can do locally. 
as well as things that we can do to help uh, global initiatives, uh, not only in our environment, but uh, there's so many things happening uh, regarding wildlife trafficking and human slavery uh, that happen in our own backyards. And we have to work hard uh, to stop that. We have some wonderful guests coming to Freeland Film Festival. Jane Seymour, the actress and philanthropist uh, known for being a Bond girl and uh, Dr. Quinn fame, uh, will be joining us and her organization, Open Hearts. Uh, we're very excited to have her and Michael Mitchell, uh, the uh, CFO uh, of the 1984 Olympics, as well as the producer of Live Aid in 1985. He'll be joining us. Uh, so we're very excited. And the Freeland Film Festival, people can find out more information about it online, and it starts on Friday, and um, how, how many days does it go? Through the whole weekend, so it's Friday through Sunday. Go to freelandfilmfest.org, and uh, we'd love to have you up at Green Lake. And Kevin, your film is showing in the shorts program. It's, mm-hmm. it's a half-hour documentary. Exactly. It's 28 minutes. It'll be on Saturday afternoon at 2.30. In the, it'll be featured, and it's our U.S. premiere. I'll be heading up there with our good friend Jeanette Kravitz from Peace Journey, and we want everyone to encourage to come on up Friday through Sunday. I'll also be participating in a panel discussion earlier that day at 11.30 on climate change. And we also want to encourage volunteers and people who are interested interested in actually seeing hands-on how they can make an impact in a place like Haiti, they can also find us at www.elfuegodelsol.com. For years, you've done tours uh, in Haiti and uh, the Dominican Republic. You, you take people around. You've got a uh, track record and worked with lots of organizations. That's right. We focus on issues like fair trade and medical missions. Our overall key concept, though, is to make sure that the actions of international visitors in Haiti and in the Dominican Republic do actual beneficial activities. Lots of activities that go down there make the participants feel good but have questionable results for the actual people who live in the countries where they're visiting. Everything that we do is co-created and literally requested by the people who live in the countries where we work. So that's our big focus and one that we've worked for all of this time since I've known you for 15 years. We've always worked to make sure that the efforts we put in are really effective and beneficial for the local people and the things that the people are actually asking for. Well, congratulations on everything you've accomplished. Kevin Adair is the head of Fuego del Sol, a social enterprise in Haiti, doing waste management, recycling, clean cooking, and uh, tours of, for people in Haiti. And once again, your um, website is? ElFuegoDelSol.com or www.elfuegodelsol.com fdshaiti.com. Take your pick. Great seeing you, Kevin Adair. Tomorrow on Worldview, we'll chat a bit about Brexit and where it's all ended up. Hope you can join us tomorrow for Worldview. Uh, Steve Bynum and Julian Haida produce Worldview. Ashish Valentine is a production assistant here. And thanks to Kyle White-Sullivan for engineering. I'm Jerome McDonald. You've been listening to Worldview on WBEZ. information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts.